0: Good morning. Welcome to West Hills. Man, it's so exciting to see uh, so many of you here. Um, It's always fun to preach to a packed house and especially just to worship with God's people, no matter how many of us are gathered. Uh, My name is Will DeVall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. And again, on behalf of all of us at West Hills, it's so great to have you with us. How to live forever from Mark 10, 17 to 31. According to legend, in the year 1512, Juan Ponce de Leon received a charter from King Ferdinand of Spain to set sail for the New World in search of the coveted Fountain of Youth, a mythical spring believed to restore eternal youth to anyone who drank or bathed in its waters. Now, historians have since disputed the veracity of that popular legend, and while We now know that far from discovering a fountain of youth, what Ponce de Leon actually discovered was modern-day Florida, which ironically is better known today as Heaven's Waiting Room, um, (laughs) all of that notwithstanding, we humans have a profound preoccupation with the pursuit of immortality. Skeptics will postulate that That's where religion came from in the first place. Religion uh, evolved uh, from our ancient ancestors inventing gods and and this belief in the afterlife out of a deep need not only to make sense of this life, but out of a desire uh, to extend life beyond it in hopes of a life to come. And this yearning for perpetual life is still a dominant motif in the stories we tell today. Think of Harry Potter. Uh, The Harry Potter books, you've got not only Voldemort's uh, twisted desire to avoid his death by splitting his soul into these seven hellish horcruxes, but you've also got Harry's own resurrection in book seven and the idea that love has the power over Death, and by the way, kids, that's what we do here every week in big church. Is I ruin the endings to all the best movies and books for you to save you the time? Now you don't have to read it. Now you don't have to watch it. You can just devote your your life wholly to the Lord. <laughs> you, you think of the quest for the Holy Grail, Monty Python, uh, Indiana Jones. Uh, you can think of Gollum's precious, you know, from Lord of the Rings. From the epic of Gilgamesh in antiquity to twilight today, we are obsessed with this idea of immortality. The anti-aging industry is a multi-multi-billion-dollar-a-year business, for good reason, because we all want to cheat death and live forever. Eternal life Show of hands, how many of you here this morning would like to believe, whether you believe it or not, you would like to believe that death is a comma, not a period, and that there really is such a thing as life after death. You would like to believe that. Guess what? You're in luck. You came to the right place this morning because in Mark 10, 17 to 31, Jesus is going to divulge the secret to eternal life for us. A man comes to Jesus in verse 17 here and asks, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus offers him two options. There's only two ways by which a person can be saved and live forever. So with that introduction, would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 31. I'll read it for us. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, children, or lands, for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now, in this time, houses and brothers and sisters, and mothers, children, and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need to hear from your word this morning. God, we spend our busy lives out in the world hearing all sorts of different conflicting messages about what's most important in this life. pray that you would use this time now as we submit ourselves under the authority of your word to ground us, to recenter us, to refocus us on what is truly important and on just how it is that we may be saved. Father, for any here this morning who do not know the answer to how to live forever, how to inherit eternal life. God, I pray that you would now open their eyes, open their hearts to the truth of your word, that it might, that seed of the gospel might might fall on fertile ground this morning. Do a work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. For all of us, we need to be shaped, to be molded, to be conformed, less into the image of the world around us and more into the image of your son. And so it's in his name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, the first way to inherit eternal life is by being perfect. We see this in verses 17 through 20. Uh, this would-be follower of Jesus sure seems perfect, doesn't he? I mean, look back at this character portrait we get in verses 17 to 20. This guy was the most overqualified candidate by the world's standards for the position of disciple ever. Mark tells us the man ran up and knelt before Jesus and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Just think about that, okay? Line by line, he ran up John MacArthur notes, Middle Eastern men of status did not run. Running exposed the legs and was considered undignified and even shameful. So if this guy was running after Jesus, he was motivated. He cares more about Jesus than he does about his own reputation. Then he knelt before Jesus. If first century men of status didn't run, they certainly didn't kneel before others unless it was someone of a higher status. And Luke 18.18 informs us that this man was a ruler. Jesus, by contrast, was homeless. We don't even hear of Jesus' own disciples anywhere in the Gospels ever kneeling before him. So this is an act of extreme humility. This man cares about Jesus more than his pride, his reputation, his pride. Then he asks Jesus a question. Remember, he's a ruler. This guy is used to giving orders all day long. But here he is admitting he doesn't have all the answers. And that perhaps he hasn't even inherited eternal life yet. Jesus, how can I know for sure? You have the answer. I need to hear from you. He's deferential. He's reverential. He cares more about Jesus than his power. And lastly, he's ready. He's a man of action. He's not just looking to take the easy way out. He says, Jesus, what can I do? I'm ready to do whatever it takes to get this eternal life. And in that moment, I know he'll be proven wrong, but in that moment, before Jesus shows him the price tag, I believe that he truly, in his mind, he thought he was willing to do anything. He cares more about Jesus than his convenience. He's ready to act, get up off the couch. He's motivated, he's humble, he's reverential, and he's ready. And let's just round out the character portrait of, that we hear about this guy in verse 22. He had great possessions. Luke said he was extremely rich. That's the way Luke says it. And Matthew adds he was a young man too. So you put all that together. Here's the picture. Imagine I get done preaching today. I'm walking out to the football field. Guys, stick around for flag football. A visitor chases after me to catch up to me and chat. Now note, this has never happened to me in four years of pastoring. I have never been chased down by a visitor. Uh, I am the one chasing visitors down in the parking lot and I will do that to you if you don't come introduce yourself to me first. So just save me the sweat if you're a visitor this morning and, and come introduce yourself, please. Now, culturally for us, No one's going to kneel before me, but let's just say this guy makes it really clear in our interaction that he's humble. He's teachable. He has never experienced anything like West Hills before. He wants more. He wants in. He is convinced that God is doing something exciting at our church. He wants to be a part of it. He wants to be discipled by me personally. So he starts asking me, not telling me, right, not telling me what he's looking for out of a church. He doesn't wait and expect me to ask him all the questions about himself. And after all, excuse me, after all, he's the visitor here. I'm the one who's supposed to be you know, engaging him and thanking him for you know, spending a half hour listening to me. No, he's thanking me. He's asking me the questions. He's hungry. He's soaking it up. He wants to go deeper. He's heard one sermon. He's ready to be a member, to submit to my pastoral authority. He wants to know what he can do. He's ready to roll up his sleeves and get to work, start serving the church, plug me in. I happen to notice, by the way, he's wearing a $5,000 suit. I look down, I realize we're standing beside his Rolls Royce. This guy can write one check and our HVAC unit is fixed. You've got AC up in the balcony, one check. $50,000 is a rounding error in this guy's checkbook. He can single-handedly fund missions trips, new staff positions, church plants for years to come. Our church budget quadruples overnight. Oh, and did I mention, he's young. And he's a CEO of one of the biggest companies in St. Louis. He's got years ahead of him to influence people for the kingdom. He's got power and connections to do it. Basically, the picture painted in Mark 10 is this guy is every pastor's dream congregant. Let's just call it what it is. There's absolutely nothing not to like about having this guy at your church. The perfect congregant, you might say. But remember... 1 Samuel 16:7, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? On the heart. True faith for Jesus is always a matter of the heart. And Jesus takes one look at this man's heart and recognizes that he can have all the right energy and enthusiasm. He's running after him, all the right posture. He's kneeling, the right demeanor, he's asking. Instead of ordering, the right desire. He's even got the right desire. He wants to get busy. Jesus, tell me what to do. Use me. Plug me in. But what is he missing? It's the right heart. Where is this man's heart? Does he have an undivided heart for the Lord? A genuine heart for repentance? He's going to display exactly where his heart is in verse 20 when Jesus calls him to obey the commandments and he replies, I've kept them all since my youth. Really? All the commandments. I imagine Jesus sitting there thinking to himself in that moment, maybe you missed my earlier sermon, the one on the mountain, when I explained that looking at a woman with lust in your heart is the same as committing adultery, where I explained that getting angry with your brother is as good as murdering him that you ought to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus takes one look at this man's heart and he diagnoses him with a fatal self-righteousness complex. This man has it all together. He's perfect and he's sure of it. That's probably why he's so concerned and so confused about his eternal standing with God. Something that Jesus has just preached has, has bothered him. Maybe maybe the man has divorced his wife. Jesus just got done railing against divorce in verses 1 through 12, even though it had become a commonly accepted practice in first century Judaism. We'll talk about that next week. Maybe Jesus touched a nerve. Maybe it was when Jesus declared in verse 15 just before this, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And this guy is thinking, wait a minute. I'm the opposite of a child. Kids are small and powerless. I'm big and important hold on, Jesus, I got some follow-up questions now. How, how can I inherit eternal life? And what is Jesus' response to him? It's twofold. First, he confronts the man about, being, about calling him good. He says, why do you call me good? And second, he reminds the man of the Ten Commandments. Now, why does he do those two things? It's an interesting response from Jesus. Let's let's take each of those two things in turn. First, Jesus questions, why do you call me good? That does two things, two functions. Number one, it establishes the moral standard for goodness. Capital G, goodness. What is it, or who is it, rather, that sets the standard? Jesus says it's God. God is the standard for goodness. Jesus says no one is good but God alone. On a sliding scale of completely perfect to utterly imperfect, God to Satan, Jesus confirms that everyone is at best on that scale only varying degrees of less than perfectly good because God is the standard by which we're judged. God doesn't grade on a curve, friends. God's not grading your morality against your neighbors, your co workers, your friends, your family, right? And, and, and it's not enough to be better or to, to think that you're better. In fact, even, even that, even judging yourself against others and judging yourself to be better, ironically, is a sin. You've already missed the boat. You can be the best person you know, Mother Teresa. And if you're not perfect, you fall short of God's standard, period. Because God's standard is God. It's himself, Jesus says so in the same sermon on the mount. You must, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Anything less than that just isn't good enough. Not for heaven. Not for a perfect God. And number two, the second thing that this does, asking him who's good, why do you call me good, it is a subtle way of Jesus inviting this man to recognize Jesus' own true identity. Jesus is right. No one is good except God alone. And yet, Jesus allowed himself to be called a good man in John seven twelve, And Jesus doesn't object. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd back in John 10. Jesus claims the label good because he is God. And here in Mark 10, he's essentially asking the guy, do you get it? Do you understand? Do you know who I am? That I really am God in human flesh. The incarnate word of God, who was in the beginning with God, who was God, John 1, 2. This is biblical. Jesus is God. Because if you just think that I'm another good teacher, then you're in big trouble. You need more than a good teacher. You need a capital G, good, Savior, A fully God, fully man savior who is God enough to fulfill all God's righteous demands of the law and yet is human enough to atone for your sin. You need that kind of savior and then you're in luck because I'm him. But I'm testing you to see if you recognize it. And sure enough, what is this man's response? In verse 20, teacher, I've kept all the law myself. I've kept the law. Jesus, I don't need you. I don't need a savior because I'm good. Jesus told him that no one is good. He just taught, no one is good, Jesus said. And yet in this man's mind, he is good. He's the standard, not God. And he's good enough. Friends, that's called being self-righteous, self-justified. And according to Jesus, it means this man stands self-condemned. Paul tells us in Romans 7, 7, that the law is a moral mirror that God holds up to us for us to help us realize we are sinners in desperate need of his grace. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. That's why the law is good. That's why we read the Old Testament. You should read your Old Testament and just be overwhelmed with this sense of sinfulness and then overwhelmed with this experience of God's grace, that despite how awful of a sinner I am, Jesus loves me even more. Can I ask you something this morning, friends? If you're here this morning, and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus to be your righteousness, then what is your answer that you plan to give God when you stand before the judgment seat of God 2 Corinthians 5:10, Romans 14:12 say we all must give an account for every deed done in the body when you stand before God one day is your plan to convince a holy perfect just God that you have actually kept all the law that you have never sinned not one sin not a single day of your life Or, let me ask you this, how good do you think will be good enough for a holy, perfect, sinless God to let you into a holy, perfect, sinless heaven that was designed for holy, perfect, sinless people? How good is good enough? I'll tell you the Bible standard It's perfection. Perfection. If you are perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, then you're good. You have no need for a Savior to forgive your sins because you don't have any. Otherwise, for the rest of us, you can leave in the middle of the sermon now, like you're good to go, but for the rest of us, who are going to stick around. James 2.10 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in even one point... Even one point has become guilty of all of it. If you're not perfect, then in God's eyes, you might as well have broken the entire law. That's how a perfectly holy, perfectly just God sees sin. Romans 3.10-12, through none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if you're here this morning and you're perfect, congratulations. You've earned eternal life on your own. But for everyone else, for every human being that's actually ever lived on this earth, save for one, thank God that he mercifully provides a second way of living forever, and that is by being needy. You can be perfect or you can be needy. Those are the only two options. Beginning with verse 21, we hear, And Jesus, looking up at him, loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus didn't call this man a brood of vipers. Jesus didn't flip over tables on this guy. Jesus saw his heart, and he felt compassion. Because Jesus sees the weight that this man is suffering under, trying to be his own savior, trying to be good enough to earn, deserve God's favor. That weight is crippling. Friends, no one should try and take track number one into heaven, for starters, because no one's ever made it in that way. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The only person who could have stood justified by God, by virtue of his own perfection, to enter into heaven, decided instead to willingly trade that perfection for your imperfection and mine so that you might be declared righteous, not by a righteousness of your own, but by his imputed righteousness, attributed righteousness. Jesus swaps our files, our criminal records. He didn't have a record. Totally clean rap sheet. He goes in, he swaps the files, takes your punishment on the cross, to satisfy God's righteous hatred of your sin and freely gives you instead his righteousness to satisfy God's righteous demand of moral perfection. And all you have to do to get it is sign off on the file transfer. Faith is saying to God, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that I am who you say I am. And therefore, I believe I need Jesus to be for me who you say he is for me. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price that I owed and I couldn't pay, for giving me a righteousness that I needed but couldn't afford. Thank you. But friends, that kind of faith requires being needy. The rich young ruler has never needed for anything in his entire life. He's got people for that, servants for that, for every problem. He's never needed for anything. He's never even wanted for anything, at least not that he recognizes. And so Jesus tells him to do something. He tells him in verse 21, "'Go, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then you'll have treasure in heaven.'" Why? Why does does Jesus command him to go sell everything? I'll give you four reasons. We'll spend the rest of our time this morning in these four reasons. Four reasons why Jesus tells him to go sell everything and give it to the poor. Number one, Jesus wants the man to feel neediness. People who have never needed for anything cannot know Jesus because he came for the needy. He tells us so. Luke 4, I came for the lost, the broken, the sick, the needy, the helpless. Jesus wants to help this man, but he cannot help him until he's in a state of helplessness, unable to help himself until he realizes there's at least one thing he cannot help and accomplish by himself. All the money in the world can't buy him one thing. He's got to realize he needs help. He must learn dependency. Number two, Jesus wants to expose his sinfulness. This man fancies himself a good, upstanding, law-abiding citizen, a sinless guy, a self-justified according to the law, the Ten Commandments, and yet his refusal to obey Jesus's command here proves a couple things. First of all, He doesn't really have love for neighbor in his heart. Commandments 5 through 10, that's what they're all about. Uh, The horizontal commandments about how you treat others, uh, adultery and murder, honoring your parents, all of those love for neighbor. The fact that the man won't share with those in need proves he's greedy and selfish and has violated the second half of the Ten Commandments. But what's more, the fact that he consciously chooses to hold on to his money instead of obeying Jesus proves that he's actually violated the first half of the Ten Commandments as well. Commandments number one through four, they're all about vertical love. Loving the Lord your God. That's, that's commandment number one, the greatest commandment of all. You shall have no other gods before me. The way our daughter Ellery was taught in Sunday school, thank you Hannah and Shane and, and Miss Sally, to, to memorize this and Carol. Uh, God is number one. Don't make idols. I won't sing the whole song for you, but God is number one. God is number one, but not for this rich young ruler. He makes a conscious choice. My money is number one. It's more important. Remember earlier, we said he loved Jesus more than his reputation, more than his pride, more than his power, more than his convenience. But guess what? Jesus has found his weak spot. The one thing he loves more than Jesus. It's his stuff. His stuff. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This man makes his choice. I'm going to serve my money. And back in Mark 10 verse 22, we read, "Disheartened, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions." What a sad, sad picture. To me, that's that's one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. To be standing in front of Jesus, the Son of God. And be offered eternal life, be offered discipleship. And to turn and walk away disheartened. I bet swimming in his huge pile of money like Scrooge McDuck when he got back home that day had never felt so sad. I I envisioned him just crying, crying trying desperately to pull his money. It's a sad picture. Futile. Hopeless. Empty. And that leads us to the third reason that Jesus tells him to sell everything. It's to give Jesus himself a platform to make this really important but really controversial statement about wealth and to teach us what we need to know about wealth. Notice verse 24. The disciples were amazed at Jesus' words. And again, we hear in verse 26, uh, there's repetition here for the point of emphasis. They were exceedingly astonished by Jesus' teaching. Why? Because in first century Jewish culture, it was taken for granted that wealth and power were signs of God's favor and blessing. They're just reading out Old Testament passages, especially the Proverbs, like Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 9-10. Uh, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. It's a quid pro quo. And so you, you flip that. The converse of that would be if your barns are filled and if your vats are full, God must really love you more, bless you, favor. Proverbs the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. Proverb 21.20, precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. MacArthur explains, those who were wealthy had the means to pay for more sacrifices than did the poor. They could also afford to give more alms and buy more offerings than other people. And the Jews believed that almsgiving was a key to entering the kingdom. The apocryphal book of Tobit said, alms deliver from death and shall purge away all sin. Those that exercise alms and righteousness shall be filled with life. Thus, in the Jewish religious system, it should be easy for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, not difficult, not impos- certainly not impossible. So you can imagine why the disciples are very confused here. Jesus just flipped everything they've, they've thought about wealth all their lives on its head. Teaches them the opposite. Wealth makes it harder for you to get into heaven. Why? Two reasons. MacArthur lists two reasons. Two dangers of material wealth that we need to hear this morning, West County Church. Two dangers of wealth. Number one, wealth gives a false sense of security. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If your hope is on the uncertainty of your riches, what do you do when the stock market crashes again? Where's your hope? If the only Other way for imperfect people to get into heaven is by realizing and confessing their need than being wealthy, having enough in this life, needing for nothing makes that really, really difficult. Needing for things in this life helps us understand what need is and helps us. And so Jesus says, just be really, really careful with money because it can lull you into this false sense of security where you don't need anything. And number 2, wealth is a danger, is a dangerous place to be because it's easy to become consumed with the things of this world and where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6:19 to 21, do not lay up treasures on earth For yourselves, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. First Timothy six ten: The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Luke 12, 15-21. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That is not true life, abundant life that I came to give you. Possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store all these crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That's what wealth does. Lulls you into a false sense of security. But God said to him, fool, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? <laughs> you plan on taking them with you? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Over and over and over again, Jesus keeps repeating, be careful with money. It's like, it really is like anything in life. It's, it's morally neutral. It's like family. It's like friends. It's like sex. I mean, go down the list. I shouldn't have said that. I'm going off script. Sorry, parents. Um, guess it's time to have that talk. Um, <laughs> it's, like, it's like any morally neutral thing in life that can be either really great or really bad. It's about how you use it. It's about how you use it. The more of it you have, the more tied to this world you become. But you, Jesus says, if you belong to me, you no longer belong to this world. Your citizenship is in heaven now. Store up treasures there in heaven. Do good, be righteous. That is the Father's will. You cannot take your money with you when you die. What are you going to do on the night when your soul is required of you, friends? What are you going to do with everything you've spent your whole life working to build bigger barns? Jesus asked it this way in Mark 8. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? It just puts it really plain and simple. You want to talk about investments? That's just bad investing. Investing in this life. It's a blip on the radar screen of your eternity. Investing in this life is just a bad investment. He says, lay up treasures where moth and rust can't destroy. Eternal security. Incorruptible wealth. That's what you want. That is wise financial planning. And the fourth and final reason, and the most important reason, we're back to our previous outline now, that Jesus instructs this man to sell all that he has and give it to the poor is precisely because Jesus knew this was the one thing preventing him from turning and trusting in Jesus for eternal life. Jesus says in verse 21 One thing you lack, you've got the motivation. You've got the energy. You've got the right posture. You're willing to lay down your pride. You're willing to lay down convenience. You're willing to do some things. Good for you. But you're lacking one thing. Everyone who wants to live forever forever has to sell all their possessions and live a life of material poverty. Is that what Jesus is saying? No. I'm not going to preach that today because that's not the point of the passage. Jesus may well be calling you to sell all your possessions today. Give it to the poor. Come follow him. But he might not. That just happened to be this man's idol. That that just happened to be the one thing standing between this man and truly following Jesus. The thing that he worshipped instead of Jesus. And as we said, there are unique dangers to money that make it a really common idol for people. There's a reason it's one of the most common idols in our society. And so we should not be hasty, quick, to rip this passage out of context and make it not about material wealth. There's a reason that's the context. And I'd be remiss not to challenge us again, West County, upper middle class to upper class people, specifically on the point of wealth, Do you love your money and and the things that your money affords you? Comfort, security, status, power, not having to be needy, not having to trust in God so much to provide because you can take care of yourself. Do you love all that more than you love Jesus? Maybe not for you. Maybe that's not your idol of choice. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm... be characteristically personal with you guys, transparent this morning, money, wealth, stuff, has just never been a big idol for me. Maybe partially because I've always had it, so I've never had to think about it. I just don't need a lot of it, want a lot of it, care about it very much. It doesn't make me any better than you. It just means I've got a whole lot of other idols <laughs> that are even worse that I struggle with on a daily basis that compete for Christ Compete with Christ for primacy in my own heart. But let me ask you this morning, money or not, what is it for you? What is your one thing? If, put, read yourself into the passage for this morning. If you're the rich young ruler, what is Jesus challenging you on? If it's not selling all your stuff, what is it? Do you love your family more than Jesus? That was what it was for Abraham. God called Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. That was his one thing. Isaac, my progeny, go kill him. And then God saves him. when When he realizes, Abraham passes the test of faith. You love your family more than Jesus? Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. It's a radical call to discipleship. You love your job more than Jesus. The sense of security it affords, you, it affords you. The sense of belonging. Sense of identity and purpose and meaning that your job gives you. I don't know. I don't know what it is for you. I have time. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I was preaching on this passage on a youth retreat when we were in Culver, the boarding school there, and uh, we just happened to have a um, Chinese uh, foreign exchange student didn 't speak a lot of English had literally i don 't think ever heard of Jesus before he came to America got invited on this retreat with us and preached a similar sermon. He came up to me afterwards with tears in his eyes. And he said, Mr. Duvall, uh, Mr. D, he called me Mr. D. I, I don't think I could ever give up my mom, my relationship with my family for Jesus. It's like, I, I love God. It's like I... I I have loved this retreat. I've, I've loved all the things that I've heard about Jesus. I want more of God in my, my life. He would sing our worship songs with us and cry. It was, it was beautiful. He said, but I don't think I could ever give up my family for Jesus. And keep in mind, I mean, this, this is a, not a hypothetical for this kid. And I gave him a hug and I looked him in the eyes and I said, Rufan, I think you understand Christianity better than almost any Christian I know. Pray for Rufan if you think about it today. Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who is left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. What's it worth to you? What's he worth to you this morning? i going to close with this beautiful quote from Jim Elliot, famous missionary and martyr who gave his life to share the gospel with the Huarani people in the remote villages of Ecuador. Elliot said this: He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. how are you going to live forever, friends? There's only two options. Are you hoping to be good enough to get into heaven? Is your hope in this life, in worldly things? Paul says, if for this world alone we hope, then we, of all people, are most to be pitied. Don't you hope that there's a world to come? Don't you want to believe in eternal life? There is. It's there there's only two ways in. And there's really only one feasible way in. And even with that way, Jesus says, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And all you need is need. All you need is need. Let's pray.